Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Someday old salts will tell the tale of the good ship Walla Walla and how she broke from her monotonous ferry route for a bonus visit to Bainbridge. We're going to catch you up on that and other big news of the week with our panel of journalists. And this week, that's Seattle Times editorial board member, Claudia Rowe. Hi, Claudia. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome back. Freelance science reporter Jane C. Hu, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Bill. Alex is a tech reporter, so he knows how more than I do about why we're uh, uh, visually represented on YouTube and Facebook. But we have social media people and Bill, to help Alex streaming is a tech folks. Reporter, so- to help us with that, all you need to do is, is uh, go to YouTube or Facebook and search KOW Public Radio. Okay, big news of the week. This week, Seattle's mayor directed police to crack down on the distribution and sale of fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. If you are harming our communities by this activity, we have to coordinate our efforts in making sure that harm stops. And that's dealing with the selling and trafficking of these deadly drugs. We have to hold those people accountable. Mayor Bruce Harrell's order, executive order, also calls for an overdose response unit within the fire department. Harrell wants to also offer gift cards as an incentive to get people to enter a 12-week treatment program. But that is part of a, a philosophy to do the outreach and to develop the relationships such that people realize they don't change the way they will die. Harrell says this is all part of a plan to revive downtown and that he'll be rolling out ideas for increasing housing and foot traffic and attracting workers back to downtown offices. And Claudia Rowe, the word you use to describe this is vague. I do think it's vague. Um, The mayor did not set out any kind of real timetable or a budget other than um, June uh, for a reopening of City Hall Park. So that's something. Uh, and important. But I I think that being vague could be useful to a politician. What do you mean useful in this case? Well, if you don't lay out a specific timetable, you can't be held to um, account for missing those, you know, that Mm. your schedule. Mm -hmm. Alex, does what is in the executive order seem effective? Yeah, I think it's fine. But like Claudia is kind of saying, it seems more like a public relations campaign than any sort of significant policy change. Like she said, there's there's not a real budget. There's not a real timetable we have here. Um, the things he lays out sound very nice, right? Increased foot traffic, better lighting, you know, those sort of natural surveillance things in cities to quell concerns about public safety. Um, but our wine and art gallery walks and increased events, you know, on city streets going to really get people back in a meaningful way, um, especially if office workers don't materialize like we think they will. I, I'm not sure. And Jane, we were talking about the the repeated discussion of downtown and public safety together. Yeah, I feel like we always are talking about downtown as if it's dying. And sure, there are definitely things about downtown that can be improved, and I am all for those things. But this plan, as Claudia said, sounds pretty vague. Um, I mean, just from hearing uh, this little soundbite, it sounds like we've got three separate things going on. Increased services for people uh, who need those services, um, cracking down on fentanyl dealers, and getting foot traffic just feel like three completely different things. Um, And yeah, I just kind of feel like maybe if we stop talking about downtown like it's dying, maybe it will be less of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, or sort of enters like a 
like this doomerism mindset, like you're yelling about how bad downtown is and then you're going, hey, why isn't anybody downtown? Well, you just just told them how awful it is. Right. I can tell you that um, I was downtown during AWP, the recent uh, writers conference, which was packed and it felt fine. I mean, I was not downtown in the evening, but it, it didn't feel in any way like downtown was dying. Not at all. And I don't think anyone at the conference felt that way either, as far as I could tell. Claudia, I was at the same conference and was about to say the same thing. Um, I <laughs> Maybe had never it's great seen... in that one neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do. I would imagine that the conference center would be a hot spot for folks um, just in terms of visitors. But um, yeah, it, it felt very vibrant to me. And even walking from uh, public transit, you know, just felt like it was lively. Well, we can walk and chew gum here, right? We we can identify problems, we can identify crises, but we can also say that you know it's it's fun to be downtown, especially for events, conferences, baseball games, um, meeting people after work. So I think you're able to thread the needle of doing both, and and it sounds like that's what Mayor Harrell's trying to do in his plan. But looping back to it, it just doesn't feel like he's got a lot of the specifics about how we're going to thread that needle. In my mind, well, fentanyl use did kill almost 600 people in Seattle last year. The so-called crackdown, again, there's really, it's, there, there were no specifics on enforcement at, at this point. Um, the, the, uh, the gift cards was a little, was more specific and something I hadn't, I, I hadn't heard of a city doing before. Um, Mayor Harrell is also asking the state to issue sip and stroll permits for first Thursday art walks so people can carry a drink from art gallery to art gallery. Claudia, what'd you think of that? I really doubt that um, that's gonna be the magic key. Um, I I don't think that um, people are not going to art galleries because they can't drink en route. And it raises the question of, okay, fine. If, if you're gonna um, advocate for a sip and stroll, I mean, is it sip and smoke too? Can you just march along with your big joint looking at paintings. Uh, I mean, it just seems like if, you, if you're going to have one, how could you not have both now that that's legal too? Mm-hmm. Why are you carrying alcohol between art galleries? <laughs> that's kind of right. what I was <laughs> I mean, is, I, it, like, I is it like people on a boat think that they're supposed to drink and play mu- loud music? Like that's what you're supposed to do. I'm, <laughs> I know I'm living life to the fullest because I'm playing Bob Marley on a lake and I'm sloshing Chardonnay as I try to walk down Yesler Way. I'm a winner. Well, and again, that's the novelty of it, right? And that's what kind of makes it feel more like a PR campaign than big policy change. Yeah, it's going to be fun every Thursday to have this wine and art gallery walk. But is that going to get people walking downtown throughout the day, throughout the evening, every day? I don't know. It just doesn't feel as sustainable. Clearly showing my hand here um, at being a not very fancy person, but I didn't even know you could bring wine into an art gallery. Honestly, wouldn't you be afraid you'd be spilling wine on on the beautiful artwork? But it's a protest. You sl- you slosh wine onto an artwork. And it's like you... a Banksy thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> By the way, just the word stroll. It sounds so smooth. It's a good word for uh, allowing a glass of wine because. If you're strolling, then you're just rolling smoothly. <laughs> but walking involves bouncing up and down and sloshing the Pinot Noir. I'm just warning you if that's your thing. Okay. Uh, anything else? On, do we do we about cover that? We basically said it's it's ideas to study, to make plans, 
And we're going to keep hearing more from Mayor Harrell. Uh, this is not like a city council yeah. past thing with a budget and, and, and all that. Yeah. Okay. So let's pause there. Since we're talking about uh, uh, different drugs, uh, fentanyl and, and Chardonnay, let's, I, I want to ask you, Jane, I know you, you, you are on the psilocybin beat. And That's the right. Washington legislature approved a bill to do something to ease the availability eventually, maybe, of the so-called magic mushroom psychedelic psilocybin. Will you, will you tell us what the legislature has done? Yes. Um, so I will say that the bill is currently on Governor Inslee's desk. We're waiting to see if he will sign it. Um, so to back up a little bit, um, some of you might have heard that our neighbors to the south in Oregon um, had passed a measure in 2020 that allows for psilocybin centers. So essentially, people will be able to access psilocybin through a state-run program, and they go to a center and they can receive that psilocybin. Washington's bill initially was to basically copy Oregon and do something very similar. However, in the course of going through Senate committees, um, that bill got walked back a little bit. So now instead, what that bill says is that we're going to study. We're going to have a, a group that will look into whether we want to implement the same thing. So actually, something similar to that was proposed last year, didn't make it very far. So the fact that it's now on Governor Inslee's desk is um, is noteworthy. And the other thing that that bill does would be to create a pilot program at the University of Washington um, to have veterans and first responders who have PTSD um, receive psilocybin therapy. Hmm. Now, is there it, anything? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Claudia. Sorry, Jane. In 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 that program and in Oregon, when you access the psilocybin, do you have to stay at that site when you use it? Do you have to stay there? Yes, there are guidelines for you know how much you can receive per session, and also yeah, you got to hang out there for a little bit just to make sure that you're clear to go at the end. Oh, but so you can hang out, but but once you're okay, you can go out and experience nature or do whatever you want to do with your stuff? So I think all of the centers will be slightly different. So in Oregon, they're still setting up that system, and it's not officially open yet. But I have talked to folks who are hoping to open centers. Some of them have a nature-based component. Some of them, you know, have just kind of a hangout spot. Some of them are more focused on therapy. So, you know, they'd, they'd also be having one-on-one -on -one or group sessions with therapists. So each place would be a little bit different, but there are guidelines that people must be monitored after being given these drugs. Interesting. Is there anything in the legislation that, you know, this is a pilot program now, um, if it's successful or if they get what they want out of the program, is anything in that bill trigger the legalization of services or are we going to have to go through more legislation? I believe there will need to be more legislation, but I think the, the noteworthy thing here is essentially that um, if this bill is signed, that Washington would be committing some resources and funding to actually look into this officially. You, someone, uh, I think Claudia was asking about you're your, your free to go once you've had your session. Is And I, I've been saying psilocybin. It's psilocybin? Yeah, I've heard it, it both ways. Okay. Um, so how how high are you getting in this session and for how long <laughs> that you also often dri drive or um so i think the idea would be to keep people long enough so that they would be good to drive by the end of it for sure um but there are some places that would be giving microdoses, so extremely small doses that you might not even be able to feel like you are impaired 
Um, and then other places you'd be getting, you know, a medium to large dose um, and you're really hoping to feel the effects of those drugs. So scientists think that psilocybin can have an effect, a therapeutic effect, even if you don't feel high? So the the jury is still out on that, honestly. Um, There have been a lot of studies that look into whether microdosing is effective, if it does anything. And surveys and anecdotally, it seems like a lot of people feel like it does something for them. But when you get into randomized controlled trials, like clinical trials of it, it seems like there are no long lasting effects. People say that they feel a little bit better right after they take this drug. But in the long term, it doesn't seem to, at least the science so far, does not seem to support that there's any long-term effect of microdosing. Hmm. I'm trying to wrap my head around these centers. Are there, like, good analogies? Like, is it is it going to be similar experience of, like, going to a bar and having a drink? Or is it more like a spa experience? Because it's not just, it's not takeout, right? You have to experience the, the drug there, right? Definitely. From what I've heard from folks who want to open centers and you know the concepts that have mm-hmm. been out there about it it feels definitely more like a spa experience than a bar experience but especially as the centers actually open it'll be interesting to see the diversity if folks have just different tax that they're taking to try and attract different audiences okay well have we learned anything from Oregon if Oregon's ahead of us or what lessons are we taking I think that the lesson is that it is very hard to set up a system like this. There is a lot that needs to be done. Colorado actually also voted to do this in uh, November of 2022. Um, And so they are now trying to set up a system as well. And there's just all sorts of bureaucracy involved. So it seems like not a bad tack necessarily to, to take a look at Um, to have a a group dedicated to figuring out, like, well, how would we implement this? Um, I think looking at Oregon and Colorado, I'm sure that Washington legislators would learn a lot. And and Jane, is the is the ultimate aim sort of um, this is a better route for therapy or is the ultimate aim this should be legalized for recreation? Depends on who you talk to. There are people on both ends of that, or I mean, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive per se, but there are some people who are much more interested in the therapeutic route, um, especially for for veterans. A lot of studies and um, just kind of legislation has centered around veterans because I think that's an easy thing to rally around. Um, But then there are also folks who just want this to be decriminalized and available for recreational use. All right. So we'll right now it's. Early bit, early days in Washington State. Study, fund, fund a study. Governor Inslee has a next move, and then we'll see what happens, I guess. Okay. Well, let's pick back up on Olympia after we take a short break, since our task here is to catch you up on the week's big news. More of Week in Review when we return. On KUOW's Week in Review, you just got caught up on psilocybin in Washington State from science reporter Jane Hu. We also have Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson and Seattle Times Ed Board member Claudia Rowe. I'm Bill Radke, by the way, and you can watch this uh, show on YouTube or Facebook. Search KUOW Public Radio. This week, our state house passed the ban on some semi-automatic weapons. Governor Inslee will sign this into law, and Claudia, you called this a sea change. Yeah, I, I think it is because the 
um, ban on selling assault rifles um, is part of a larger package of legislation, which also includes, we have a lot of things. Um, We have a 10-day mandatory waiting period now for buying handguns. We have requirements to show proof of training. We have a safe storage law, which is prior to this session. And this session, we also have a right enshrined uh, in state law now to um, to enable individuals as well as the state attorney general to go after the firearms industry if they feel they can prove um, that it's acted irresponsibly. Um, the reason it's a sea change is because I remember very clearly as recently as 2007 or eight um, reporting a story where um, a young, a kid, a teenager had stolen his father's um, rifle at home and accidentally shot and killed his uh, brother. And at the time, just even the suggestion, this is like 2007 or eight, even the suggestion of a safe storage law was just laughed out of the room, let alone an assault weapons ban. And here we are, you know, 15 years later um, with this suite of quite aggressive legislation that that really places Washington um, kind of well well ahead of many, many other states. Not all. Um, we would be one of 10 now with an, a, a ban on selling assault weapons. But that is a massive change in a comparatively short amount of time. And I think it's a result of what we see going on nationally, something that looks out of control. And yes, this is a, a ban on selling and I think manufacturing, distributing, not owning these weapons. Correct. Yeah, yeah, importing. And I think that's an important distinction, right? Um, people are going to wonder if that's going to be maybe overturned by the Supreme Court like the New York State gun um, law was. But again, that's different because that was really a law centered around concealed permits, you know, people's right to carry possession. And this isn't a law about possessing a gun. I don't think it's in the language at all. It's, it's really just about the manufacturing, um, buying and importing of a gun. Okay. I just find it really fascinating sort of as a as a signal of a cultural change in Washington state, which has long been um, very much about gun rights and, you know, sort of individual rights. And to see this kind of legislation coming kind of uh, increasing momentum in the last decade or even fewer years is is of note. How wide a cultural change do you think that is, though? Is that just some state lawmakers who moved over into the yes column and feel that they won't lose their jobs? Or do you think Washington state as a whole is really changing its mind, Eastern included in the the more conservative parts of Western? It's a good question. But of course, it's the voters who put, you know, these legislators into office, um, uh, to, to your point. So, um, I do think there will be legal challenges. I I anticipate that. I I also think just because there will be legal challenges doesn't mean you shouldn't act. No, um, you know that would just be sort of like learned helplessness, a sort of paralysis preemptively. Um, I do think I do think a majority of voters here feel that we need to do something in response to what is going on every week in this country, maybe every day. Maybe it's a matter of who the motivated voter is. We used to think of gun fans being the most motivated to the polls. And maybe in the last few years, it's been uh, people who want more gun regulation have become more motivated. I I don't know. Jane, how will we know if this uh, ban is working? 
I think that's the tough thing. Um, nothing will happen if the suite of new legislation actually does its job. And I hope nothing happens because we've seen too many shootings already. I want to circle back on the popularity just for a second. I mean, it's not just legislation that we've seen this regulation come down. In 2018, voters passed the um, raising the bill on assault weapons um, sales to, I think, 21. For young people. That's true. Uh, you know, and that was really popular. I think it won 60 percent of approval. So it's not just lawmakers making unpopular rules. Um, of course, there's opposition, but this is something voters have wanted in the past. Yeah. Okay. Um that is going to be signed by the governor. We already know that. I want to move now to legislation passed in both houses, I believe, to give a tax break, to extend and increase a tax break to newspaper publishers in order to help sustain local journalism, which raises the question, can a panel of journalists be fair and balanced <laughs> on this topic? No. We might be too cynical. I don't know. Yeah, there's that. How, uh, Claudia? Do you do you know the the details of the tax break? How it, how um, it works? Not in in not in tremendous depth, but um, I I wouldn't claim to be you know unbiased on this one. I well, I do you are think an editorial that, board member. <laughs> I do think, from what I understand, um, the projection is it'll cost about a million dollars a year, this tax break costs the state a million dollars a year um, to offer these breaks to about 164 news agencies, news outlets. And um, considering the fact that local news um, is responsible for some enormous um, public good for, for exposing um, tremendous abuse um, uh, in schools aimed at special needs students for exposing um, Seattle's mayor and police chief, illegally deleting piles of texts. Um, This is all coming from local news. And I I think that increasingly people do understand that local news is a public good for all its its gray areas and problems. I, I think people understand that local journalism is a public good and that the business model is is struggling that and we see what happens when local news goes away. So I'm hoping that there's also a cultural shift that happens and I'm not sure <laughs> that legislation can help that and I'm not sure how to make that happen. Um but I think that we as citizens need to accept that we might need to pay for good information. Um and I think also companies maybe should consider the public good and uh, not always be looking at the bottom line only. Um, I just am thinking about BuzzFeed News um, announcing that they are shutting down their um, Pulitzer winning team and because they weren't making enough money. And that's hard. It's, It's hard to know I think this legislation is definitely a start, but it feels like there are deeper problems here that we'll need to address as a society if we want to keep local news robust. Part of that um, you can see happening with the you know increasing role of philanthropy in journalism, um, which was you know as recently as ten years ago was seen as just anathema, just just you know much clutching of pearls at the idea. Um, but now is pearl is, clutching, Claudia, because why? Well, I think I know what you mean, but say more about that. 
Oh, the idea that um, a private uh, a, a private organization, philanthropy, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, um, which might have its own agenda, yeah. right? So, philanthropic funders are are usually aimed at a certain social issue. Um, so the idea that a philanthropist who might have their own agenda would be funding newsrooms to any degree was, I think, quite um, really kind of alarming to a lot of um, traditional journalists. And I can certainly understand why. Obviously, I will say Seattle Times was a recipient of that kind of funding for education coverage starting in 2013. And and the paper hired me based on that funding. And I can say that there was great um, caution and cynicism about it within the newsroom initially. Um, I can also say for sure that... um, we never were told right about this because, you know, the Gates Foundation, which was our primary funder, likes it. Never once did I hear anything close to that. Um, and I think that 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 the reality that um, we need journalism, we need to find new ways to fund it, and and journalists want to do right by their profession, in, 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 as far as I can see, um, I think that truth became clearer and clearer to the newsroom at large, such that the the model expanded. And now the Seattle Times um, funds a number of different beats through various forms of philanthropy. Yeah, and it's, I think it's great to see public um, or policy intervention, um, you know, to solve some of these problems. But I, I do worry that, you know, something like this is just going to kind of be a Band-Aid on a smaller problem. Um, it's going to help certain outlets, right? Seattle Times is privately owned. Um, we're owned by a private company, the Peterson Business Journal is. So, you know, they, I'm sure they would glad to get a tax break on that. But a lot of what you're seeing in local news are giant hedge funds, um, public companies buying um, small newspapers, and uh, tax breaks not as big of an incentive to them, right? They they have to have, you know, revenue growth and profitability growth every quarter. Um, and when they don't have that, how are they going to justify that to their shareholders if they've got this small paper that's a, that's a you know, operating costs every quarter, it, they can ax those reporters. So um, we just saw that with BuzzFeed, right? It, it BuzzFeed's a public company. And it wasn't just that BuzzFeed News was losing money. It's that they didn't really ever have any revenue or profitability growth. And shareholders don't like that. So I, I don't know if tax break is the um, fix for that, but it's, it's going to be the fix for some outlets, I'm sure. I use the words newspaper publisher, but this is for who, who's a newspaper? What about websites, radio, TV, what news outlets get this break? Do we know this business and occupation tax break? I actually don't know how widespread it's going to be. Um, okay. If a company is or a paper is owned by a company out out of state, will they will they qualify? I'm not sure. Yeah, good question. I don't know the answer to that either. It's a good question. All right. How did they? How did? How were there so many newspapers, which is what they were in the olden times when there wasn't big advertising dollars? In doing that, how did they sustain? Was there much local journalism over the history of our country? I just this is something. I guess I'm just expressing a curiosity with no actual information to help you out. So maybe uh, I'll just. It was it was a lot of ad spending. Um, yeah. that was the only place you could really advertise for newspapers. Yeah, and, right. and TV for the longest time. Um, so advertisers spent a lot of money to pump newspapers full of ads, classifieds, 
um, things like that. But that, that's all gone now. I'll also say that the um, the idea that journalism should be fair and balanced um, and unbiased is relatively new in the history Very of new. newspapers and magazines. People used to pay for these written materials because they just parroted back like what they already believed. Um, and so you had newspapers and magazines with really strong angles, really strong beliefs um, that people wanted to pay for. Um, and I think it, it's a little bit harder to, I don't know, potentially sell that now, especially given the proliferation of free stuff online, um, which sometimes is good and sometimes is really not good. And they were incredibly sensational back in the day. I oh, mean, yeah. that's where the term yellow journalism comes from. But if you look at old you know, Pulitzer and Hearst papers, um, some of those headlines are <laughs> they're unbelievable these days. Right, right. Yeah, good point. They were arms of different, um, you know, industries and yeah. interest groups. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the uh, we've been discussing the legislature extending, fully waiving the BNO tax on publishers. It was a you know I don't remember the percentages, but uh, this was this tax break already existed has has for almost fifteen years, but it was about to expire. It's been extended, and and now there's uh, no no BNO tax on publishers. I'm told. Okay, so we've been talking about uh, a lot of legislative stuff and other stuff. The news of the week. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to leave Olympia to talk about the tenant landlord relationship and the wayward Walla Walla, wayward Walla Walla, Washington. When we we toyin. <laughs> You are catching up on the news of the week with me. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm just mostly asking the questions of the Seattle Times, Claudia Rowe, Puget Sound Business Journalist, Alex Halverson, science reporter, Jane C. Hu. And this week, the Seattle City Council put a cap on the fee that a landlord can charge a tenant for being late on the rent. That cap will be $10 per month if the mayor signs this. Councillor Sarah Nelson had proposed either $50 or 1.5% of the monthly rent, whichever was less, but City Councillor Tammy Morales resisted that. I got that. Just a sec. Here's Tammy Morales. These are punitive charges very often uh, for people who are already having a hard time with housing costs. And charging $50 or up to $50 for someone who's struggling to pay rent doesn't serve renters and it doesn't serve landlords. Uh, maybe landlords would rather decide whether it served landlords. But the $10 cap passed on a 7-2 to two vote. Claudia, do you think the mayor is going to go along with this? Oh, well, I can't, Matt, I can't pretend to know what's in the mayor's mind. I, I do think that... Um, the person who wrote the editorial for uh, the Seattle Times editorial made an interesting point in that um, the $10 cap seems like it um, is actually more helpful to the wealthier renter, the the person who can afford to be in a $3,000 swanky, you know, two, three bedroom apartment for them, a $10 late fee is nothing. Um, it's really nothing. And for somebody struggling to scrape together, you know, $900 for a studio, if such a thing even exists anymore in Seattle, um, you know, it's a bit more onerous. This is similar to our sales tax, right? To, to, um, the way our sales tax is really a a much heavier weight on people who earn less money. So I, I, I could understand, um, the argument then for the percentage, which is, is, 
essentially a sliding scale. And even Councillor Sarah Nelson's version would have only gone up to $50 because her proposal was either 1.5% or $50, whichever is less. So right. a truly progressive late fee system uh, would be would be even different from that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think that the editorial said $10 is, is the $10 cap is, is neither an incentive nor a punishment. It sort of seems like nothing. I, I mean, obviously, if you're a renter in trouble, you know, you, I could certainly understand why that's better. Um, but uh, as the councilwoman said, I, I don't think people want to be late on their rent. I think if people are late on their rent, they're suffering and they're in trouble. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I guess if you're the three thousand dollar a month renter and you're and you just sort of lost track of time or you're lazy or cavalier about paying your rent, then I guess the ten dollar cap suits you. Yeah, that's why it kind of sounds to me almost like a straw man, the, the editorial board saying that. I mean, with auto payment these days, if you're in a swanky apartment, they've probably got that automated system. I don't know any, if there's any data on this, but are wealthier apartment residents ever that late on rent? Um, like the councilwoman said, nobody really wants to be late on rent. So it's probably more of an issue of people scrounging up money for rent. Um So it's just one of those logical fallacies to me, the criticism over this in my mind. Shama Sawant, city councilor, said renters don't get late fees when their furnace or mold isn't fixed right away. They don't get to collect a fee. (laughs) So true. And I mean, I think ultimately folks who take issue with this, I've heard folks say, you know, what about um, small time landlords? I think in that case, if you have a small number of renters, maybe talk to them, uh, maybe see what's going on with them. If they are consistently paying rent late um, and are unable to for some reason, um, I think this hopefully takes some of the incentive out of having these compounding late fees or long-term penalties. Um, but I really just keep going back to this thought that no one wants to be late on their rent. And um, $10 fee just to be like, hey, Remember that you got to pay this on time um, could be enough incentive, but otherwise it might be a way to, to discover and have a conversation about why that keeps happening. Well, a conversation may or may not work, but it is the rental owner who has to pay their mortgage and their property taxes and upkeep. You know, so it's so it's falling on them. Sarah Nelson said uh, late fees incentivize tenants to pay on time. And, quote, landlords don't charge fees to make money because they charge rent to make money. And uh, Sarah Nelson and many others have said that all the either been uh, in the past half a dozen years, something like 20 renters rights regulations. Some of that's pandemic related, but there, that we, it's it's been made. The city's made it harder on landlords, particularly mom and pop landlords, and that uh, that that keeps it's going to keep housing stock low, which is not what we want. Any response to that? Well, you know the the late fees incentivize people to pay rent on time. I w- I would say the next rent check incentivizes me to pay rent on time. I don't want to pay two rents the next month. So again, it's just I think one of those more straw man arguments. Um, I I would like someone to explain to me why late fees aren't kind of fundamentally a junk fee. Um, I'm not seeing that service reflected 
you know, in my service as a, as a tenant or anything. Um, and again, I get that it pays the mortgage and everything, but that's what the rent does. Um, and if I don't pay rent for multiple months, well, then I'm evicted. So it seems like the incentivization for me to pay the rent is already kind of there, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm also curious what percentage of our housing stock actually is from these smaller um, landlords that we seem to be talking about here rather than these giant companies that are not even owned by anyone in Washington who are probably charging sizable fees and now won't be able to. Yeah, I know I know small landlords are people who write to me and tell me they're a small landlord and for years they've been writing and saying that this these rules are going to push me out and I some some of them I still get emails from. So <laughs> so they it, apparently it's not the the rules haven't become so onerous that it's still not a pretty good deal to be a landlord which I have been in my past. Um but I it's a it's a without casting any aspersions it's a fair question to just ask what what are the pros and cons? Let's say even if these regulations do reach a point where a significant uh, number of small landlords, it's not worth it. I'll you, use my money some other mm-hmm. way. What would be the con? How would that how would that hurt renters versus any benefit that comes to renters from the regulations? That would be a dispassionate way of asking the question. And again, here I am asking a question without being able to answer it. But um, yeah, Claudia, any more thoughts? Not really. I mean, I, I think Jane's question is, gets to the heart of it. Like, I, I would like to know that, too, about, you know, what what is the percentage of sort of your mom and pop landlord versus your massive corporate overlord? Um, I also suspect that-, that this might that one thing might not be it. Right. So, Bill, you said people have been writing you for years. I imagine it is not easy to be a landlord having never been one. Um it's a headache. It yeah, it seems like a lot to to handle, especially if you know you have other stuff going on and that's not your primary job. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've seen plenty of, na- of of rentals in my neighborhood be sold. Just I, I don't know why. It could be just that uh, the the housing stock is incentivizing selling right now mm-hmm. as opposed to renting. It could just be life circumstances. It could be any number of things. And I wonder um, how much this one little thing. Uh, would be really driving that big decision to get out of the the renting market. I think it's a cumulative effect, but uh, I, but I don't have I don't have data to back it up. Um, maybe this will come up later. The question of um, uh, land. Whenever I hear landlord now, I hear a recent story. I did. I'm doing this series called Words in Review. It's in the same. Uh, podcast feed. You can hear it in your Weekend Review podcast feed. But I've been looking into different words that we use. They pop up in news and culture. And so landlord versus housing provider, which some landlords mm-hmm. would rather be referred to, like this ain't feudal England. I'm not a <laughs> lord. Uh, but that's in that's uh, somewhere in your feed. So you can, and on the website too, at KOW.org, you can check out words in review. I might come back to that, but I just want to make sure that we uh, mention another news story of the week that we haven't gotten to yet. This week, Bainbridge Island witnessed a maritime disaster. A state ferry went off course and gently nudged its way onto a place called Pleasant Beach, where locals awaited passengers with hot chocolate. Or, as the Seattle Times called it, quote, an unwelcome marker of the 111th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. (laughs) My friend David Crowman. How true that is. Alex, does a power failure normally beach a state ferry? 
I've never heard of it, but there's a lot of mechanical problems on these ferries, right? There's quite often now that the fleet is aging. Um, there's not a good pipeline to replace them. And some of the boats that should be retired are still being used and worked on quite often. Um, so you have a lot of service issues. Um, I used to commute by ferry. So it's happened to me. You're from Kitsap Peninsula. I'm from Kitsap Peninsula. I grew up uh, near Kingston, took that ferry a lot, used to commute by the Bainbridge Island Ferry. And there was quite often where I'd, you know, bike from Lower Queen Anne to the ferry dock, get there, and I miss a ferry because the boat's out for repair, um, which is a huge inconvenience because you live and die by that ferry schedule. Mm -hmm. But so this specific problem I haven't seen, but uh, there's a lot of problems with our fleets. Yeah, it must have been something besides just flickering lights um, that that sent it to Bainbridge. Yeah, the fleet is aging, as you said. Um, and Jane, you were on the Bainbridge ferry the day before this grounding happened. Might you have caused it? <laughs> Sorry, everyone. It was me. Okay. Yep. It was definitely me. Yeah, I was on the other Bainbridge ferry um, mm. the day before, and I actually was, as I was sitting in the car looking up at the ramp, they have these big metal boxes that tell you that there are 100 adult um, life, life vests yeah. and 10 mm. children's life vests. And mm. I was thinking, I wonder how often those actually get used. And then the next day. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, while I was waiting for the ferry, I actually, um, on the way back to Seattle, um, the ferry that I was supposed to be on got canceled. And I was waiting in line, and there was a woman in the car behind me um, who just started chatting me up and said, you know, I'm thinking about moving here. My son is going to UW in the fall. I'm going to move to Bainbridge. Like, is this always what it's like? Like, are there these delays all the time? Um, you know, how convenient or... Um, inconvenient would it be to try and make that commute and uh, I think it really just kind of underscores it got me thinking about um, whether this is normal it does seem like we've had a, a year of ferry mishaps that have really shown how the fleet is aging and how that is going to affect people and is already affecting people who who commute by that ferry. Um, and it sounds like, based on the Seattle Times reporting, that we are not going to get any new ferries until 2027. So we might just be in it for a little bit until that can happen. And to kind of underscore the inconvenience of this, I think I think it's important to note this was the Bremerton to Seattle ferry, um, which has been on a one-boat schedule for a while, and that's an hour-long route. So taking the boat out of that schedule, I mean, that's, that's hours upon hours of service delays. Um, and yeah, you can drive around from Bremerton to Seattle, but again, that just takes up time. So you're taking out the convenience of what used to be a major metropolitan area. You know, Seattle stretched out to Bremerton. If you've got this fleet that's less reliable, less dependable, people are going to start taking it less, and then you sort of lose that extended metropolitan area. Is there not a boat in the bullpen ready to swap out for the Walla Walla? Well, they do, but if all these boats keep having issues, yeah. well, then you're going to have one that's in repair, and the one that was in repair is supposed to be the backup. That's the problem of having such an aging fleet is you're going to have times where a lot of them are broken down at one time, mm -hmm. hence more service delays. I think it's like half the fleet is is at least 40 years old. I think five of, of the fleet of 21 ferries is over are over 50 years old. It just seems like kind of a... A problem we could have seen coming. This seems like long deferred maintenance, right? I mean, we could have seen this coming. This, uh, uh, right? I mean, Alex, does this seem like that to you? Yeah, I mean, I people have always been talking about how old the ferries have gotten. Um, it, it's been an overreported issue. Um, it, it's been 
it's been covered forever, yeah. And our state used to build all of our ferries, right, at Todd Shipyards, which then got taken over by Vigor several years ago. And the state is now, haven't they approved this, that they're going to send bids out of state? So your Washington State Ferry might have been might be built elsewhere? Yeah, the Seattle Times covered this, uh, David Crowman did. And I, I believe he reported that they're in the process of rebidding the contracts right now. Um, Con- the negotiations with Vigor sort of broke down. So again, uh, that's taking jobs out of out of Seattle, building these ships. Um, I can only imagine it's going to prolong the process and delay it as well. And the the it's more expensive to build a ferry boat here. Is that just because of that wages are higher here, or there's more regulation here, or just that Vigor was taking advantage of its near monopoly and charging us a lot of money? Crowman so uh, quoted a, a boat builder saying, um, a boat builder here, saying it's about 20% more costly to build boats here because of environmental regulations, because of a higher cost of living, higher wages, um, 20% more than it would be, say, I think he was saying in the South, um, South U.S. Hmm. So, yeah, um, we have a problem. And yes. the whole process has gotten a lot more expensive than the last time they built a lot of boats, right? Between 2000 and 2010, they didn't build any boats. So look at the price of just steel um, pre-2000 compared to now. I mean, it's multiplied um, a, a lot since then. Will these all be electric ferries, the new ones? I think they're supposed to, right? That's what I read. Be kind well, of cool. We just need to have a boat with with no electricity, so that a power failure can never. <laughs> I was about to say we just had a power outage. Do we want electric ferries? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but one more thing on ferries. I lived on Vashon for a time, oh, thirty years ago, more than that. Um, and there, wa- I just want you to know if you if you're not old like I am that. Ferries used to be, I used to, I think I've said this before on this show, I carried around the paper schedule in, you know, oh, yeah. in 1982 because the schedule meant something. And now I just leave whenever I leave between, between ferries being down. My sister still lives on Vashon. She calls it a, something like a crap storm. Uh, between the ferries just being down and the ferry lines, I don't pay any attention to ferry schedules anymore. No, growing up at the peninsula, everybody had a paper schedule on their refrigerator. Yes. Every single house in Kingston and Paulsbo. Exactly. So there's a money saver right there. Don't bother <laughs> having schedules. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I do want to find out what's made you smile this week. I'm going to leave you with one since I brought up the my Words in Review podcast where I pick up on a word or phrase in the local news landlords, dive bars, icons. Um, This week, uh, you're going to meet Seattle author Claire Dieterer, whose new book is about what it's like to love an artist who turns out to be an allegedly nasty or predatory person. Think Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, Hemingway. The book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, and we discuss the word monster, the word obsession, and the word genius, usually used to describe men, like Picasso. He has this kind of divine inspiration that there's a muse, that there's something flowing through him that helps create this very fluid, exciting work. And license sort of comes alongside that. If you have this external force sort of feeding you and making you make this incredible work that people love and also is making a lot of money, then your other impulses start to become uh, protected. 
you don't want to turn off whatever it is that's flowing through this guy. And if it's his freedom means like making Guernica, but also putting out a cigarette on someone's cheek, it's all this very male energy that is for good or ill. Claire says the word genius is a hall pass. And you can hear that conversation in my podcast, Words in Review, which you hear in your Week in Review podcast feed. Okay, time to wrap up the show and give listeners something to smile about. Alex, what made you smile this week? So the Mariners are losing, um, familiar. But uh, uh-huh. Julio Rodriguez, I guess, now has a trident when he hits a home run. I don't know if it's the whole team thing, but that did make me smile. Yes, a trident being a reference to the Mariners' logo. and Absolutely. The, the Mariner. Is that trident too heavy or something? Because the Mariners' hitters don't seem to want to hold <laughs> hold it so far. This yes, <laughs> maybe it's a curse. I don't, I don't know, but I, I like it. It's been so cold, you don't want to hold something metal. That's true. So that's just disincentivizing an offense. Um, Jane, anything making you smile? Speaking of Seattle sports, um, I am an avowed San Jose Sharks fan, so I was excited when the NHL came to Seattle. I'm still warming to the Kraken, but I am very excited to see them in the playoffs. And um, so game two did not go so well last night, but uh, game one, hey. Hey. And uh, and they're they're coming back here this weekend. Um, If anyone has... Tickets that are less than $300, please hit me up online. I would love to go, but uh, StubHub is is popping off right now. So Yeah, I went to one cracking game, and we had a great time, me and my kid. Claudia, we got about a minute left. Anything making you smile? Yeah, um, it's uh, strangely policy-related. Um, mm. I was <laughs> glad to see the governor finally formally abolish the death penalty. We haven't had that um, in Washington for a number of years uh, since he um, since since a moratorium in 2018. Mm-hmm. However, I was very glad to just see the ceremony and seal the deal. Um, no more death penalty in in Washington, uh, presumably forever. And and I think that is a good thing. Um, there's other policy stuff, but I'll 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 keep it there. Okay, Claudia Rowe is an editorial board member at the Seattle Times. Jane C. Hu is a freelance science reporter, and Alex Halverson reports on tech at the Puget Sound Business Journal. And I'm uh, smiling because you put on a great show. Thanks for being our journalist panel this week. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Thanks, Bill. Thank you to our producer, Kevin Canistet, and to Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu, who help us with social media and live streaming so you can watch the show at uh, YouTube and Facebook when you like. Thanks to Bernard Wallet who runs the board and makes it all sound great. And thank you for making the show possible. Thank you for listening. I'm Bill Radke. We'll see you in another week on Week in Review. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.